Hello everyone, this is Jose Herrera with the O3XX series. Today's special guests are Carmen Medina and Dr. Julian Mossbridge. Before sharing a bit about our guests, I want to say something about this particular day, June 6. 11 years ago, while conducting combat operations, my fellow brother, Sergeant Joseph M. Garrison, made the ultimate sacrifice. Because of his actions, the lives of his Marines were spared. I was with Joe in the end. And not a single day goes by where I don't think about his actions and his dedication to his Marines. Every year I try to honor his legacy and the mission by doing something special. And today's special guests are part of that tradition. In an attempt to solve the issue of the mental health crisis in our country and the suicide epidemic, I asked Carmen and Dr. Mossbridge to come on the show and discuss mental health, leadership, unconditional love, and the complex overlays that tether a life. Eleven years ago, my brother, Sergeant Garrison, gave me his last wishes before he was killed. He said, Josie, whatever you do, bring the boys back home. I honored that, and they came home. Over a decade later, the boys aren't staying home. They're checking out. We aim to solve this issue. While it may take some time, I am confident that we will triumph over this darkness. Semper Fidelis. And now, a bit about our special guest. Carmen Medina is a former CIA Deputy Director of Intelligence, a 32-year veteran of the intelligence community. She is also the author of Rebels at Work, a handbook for leading change from within. Dr. Julia Mossbridge is the Executive Director of the Institute of, for Love and Time, a fellow at the Institute of Noetic Sciences, and an associated professor at the California Institute of Integral Studies. Her research focuses on how time works, how events in time are perceived, by our unconscious and conscious minds, and on the power of unconditional love to positively influence human lives. We hope you enjoy this conversation. Today is a special day. Um, it's 11 years since a, a brother of mine was killed in, in, in combat. And every year I try to do something special uh, in, his, in his honor and his sacrifice. And um, so this is, this is it. Um, we have we do have a mission here and you know the mission in comparison to what a lot of institutions are doing is, is very minute but i believe it's it's something that's core that a lot of other units a lot of other branches aren't doing and that's essentially weaving together this torn narrative uh within the military service uh sector and 
man, I want to say probably the fall of Afghanistan, and that's a horrible thing to say, but you know, that hyper compounded amongst other issues really disrupted a lot of things. And, you know, one of the, one of the things that I've been trying to do, and I often drag Tyler along with me is I've been trying to challenge a lot of these generals that I speak to a lot of the retirees that I speak to, because they still have a lot of pull within a lot of these areas that they served in to thinking outside the box. And I know I say a lot of crazy stuff, and the crazy stuff has a purpose to it. Uh, but we, you know, and I think this goes into something that you've been trying to get at too, Carmen, for the past uh, several decades is, is how to like change or bring about theological change in some of these very, very uh, limiting and one dimensional uh, kinds of institutions or just organizations. And um, as you know, you know, my mentor, Doc P says all the time, you're like, you're living in the future, dude. And a lot of people don't, you know, they don't think like that. So I got to try to come back and bring it to the present where we find individuals, innovators um, like yourselves uh, to present information, uh, maybe in, in, a, in a more practical manner, vice me just going off on, you know, some retiree about you know, bio, bio uh, induced precognition, you know, something like that. So um, first and foremost, thank you for taking the time today to sit with me in this war dog right here. Um, this is, I think this is probably going to be the most, I don't know, this is kind of a beast of a, an interview or conversation. Um, just because I, I don't, I consider you both outliers and innovators at the same time, way, way above my pay grade. And so I'm, I'm here as a student to learn, uh, but more importantly, uh, just absorb what you have to say. So I appreciate your time. I don't know if yeah, there's thank any you. No, thank you very much for, for coming on. I mean, when Jose proposed this interview to me, I was like, you know, we're used to kind of talking to our guys, you know, like grunts, Marine grunts. And, you know, I was just like, all right, man, like, you know, I, I'll come along with you and, and do this. I'm very interested in, in what you guys can provide to our community. Um, I'm sure, as you know, you know, there's a epidemic right now, uh, not only in the armed services, but within our country and the world. Mental health is like the big, you know, keyword nowadays but it's like for years since we left sir i i got out in 2010 um after two deployments uh with second battalion eighth marines jose stuck around did another combat tour um and ever since that time frame and and the combat deployments kind of started tapering off we've been we've had issues with guys you know taking their own lives and and really struggling to to kind of rewire themselves to be adaptable in today's world um and then of course the you know the pandemic and all that and isolation doesn't do anyone any good so um that's kind of how this all came about about a year ago a little over a year ago me and jose were just communicating through social media and he asked me to come talk with him and then kind of this developed from it and we've got a lot of really good feedback especially from our unit guys and, and other units, you know, guys that are just like, man, this is great. We need stuff like this because doing push-ups on social media doesn't really 
keep anyone from killing themselves, you know, um, as unfortunate as that is, but, but yeah, um, great, powerful minds, like, like the two of you in the, in the lives you've lived, which, you know, I'm sure are beyond my, my reach, what I could even think that means. Um, I appreciate you sitting down with us and kind of, um, sharing whatever you're willing to share. So thank you. Well, I mean, I imagine talking about lies that I can't imagine. I, I can't quite imagine your lies. I mean, I, I will say, uh, you know, I was an army brat. So my dad was a sergeant in the army. So I'm, I'm very familiar with sergeants in the army. <laughs> and uh, my brother actually went on to the military and, and but he was an officer, he was a colonel when he was in Iraq. Um, and as a CIA, uh, officer, I, I traveled to Iraq twice, I guess, in Afghanistan once. But when you're a, a, a senior muckamuck, you get, you know, a very distorted view of, of what's going on. Uh, but I, 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 I particularly value just interactions with normal people uh, trying to make sense of what they were doing. So you were talking about the suicide rate and, and, the, and the mental health issues. And I'm just curious from your own experience, uh, kind of, you know, what, what are the typical issues? Not even gonna say causes, because causes are probably complex, but you, you mentioned Tyler that it was trying to readjust to this world uh, but another dynamic could be just this inability to shake off what they experienced in that sure. other world. So, so how would you, I don't, how do you think so, about it? I don't necessarily, and I mean, Jose, this is Jose's slice of the pie. Honestly, he could, he could talk for hours about this, but how we've connected and how we've kind of bounced things off of each other, what I believe, and, and the majority of people that are kind of looking at this from an outsider's view now like what what was the experience and what did we do um it's really especially in the marine corps and i don't want to say i'm sure there's a ton of sf units and army units and and really tight-knit guys that connect with each other on a certain level and they experience things together and then all of a sudden that ends and those ties are all severed which you know jose's we've been on deep dives and he's explained a lot to me with that and what the, what really may be going on when you, when you disconnect with people, but you live with someone, you live with guys, most, you know, enlistments are for four years. You go to combat, you experience insane, really insane things together. Um, you know, you know, you share everything, you know, how, how, how people behave, you know, you tolerate their, you know, all of their little mannerisms that, that, you know, you just learn to live with, with someone. And then all of a sudden, and of course, during that time, you have missions, you have objectives, you check them off, you succeed together, you fail together. And then one day comes and it's all gone. Mm. And then you're grounded or, or, or not, but you're expected to take on a complete 180, you know, readjust to life in a way that you had had not for a long period of time. 
And I think people that are, are resilient by nature or have learned techniques to make themselves that way, they kind of can navigate that transition a little bit easier. But the big thing is, you know, is, is just having a purpose after that, because that's such a, that's for a young man, you know, or, or woman going through that. It's such a tremendous amount of responsibility and pressure and you learn to, to operate that way. And then when that, when it's gone, you don't have those people around to help you navigate any other life circumstance, right? Because let, let's face it in the civilian sector, there's a whole lot that goes on that, that you don't have to deal with while you're an active duty service member or, or enlisted in, a, in any type of organization. So you don't have that same team or squad or platoon or, or people that, you know, care about you and your well-being helping you get through those things. And, um, and that's kind of why I think a lot of us, you know, are challenged when it comes to that. It's just, um, it's hard finding. And, and especially being a Marine or being a, a service member that's expected to be tough as nails and go complete the objective and come back. And, you know, we're, we're, it's by design. We're supposed to be hard. Right. And then you get back and you're like, Oh, sh Oh shit. I need help. But mm -hmm. I'm, I don't know who to go to. I really don't want to go to my brother because I'm not my, supposed to by, need help. Yeah. And by my brother, I mean like Jose or any other, the guys I was with because yeah is that weakness? And like, yeah. is that weakness? Because I've experienced these things and they're affecting me. Like, no, that's just human. We forget that it's kind of the thing you, that human side of you get stripped away and you're expected to be this person. And then when you come back and you're expected to be a human again, you're like, wait, I went through a ton of training to pull all of that away from me, but right. no, where's anyone to help bring it back? You know? Yeah. Um, so in, in talking and conversating about this for me, especially because, you know, like Jose, I've experienced uh, brothers that have been killed in action firsthand. Um, you know, I, I was there and experienced that, that personally, which it's obviously affected me, you know, deeply throughout my life. But I, uh, and, you know, me and Jose have, have talked about this, like, I'm grateful for that situation and how it developed me. And, um, you know, their sacrifice means everything to me. Oh, and, you know, anyone that can, can invest themselves into something and be that dedicated to something and, and be literally willing to die and die for it. Like, I just have so much respect for that because you are in control of your life at that point, even if, even if, the worst circumstance happens and you give your life for it. You made the decision to do that. It wasn't, you know, you weren't just being idle and, and cruising. You were being active and you intentional. Know, yeah, exactly. So, um, so no, yeah. I've got a couple of, of thoughts that, that, that jumped into my mind while you were talking. Well, first I'm going to steal the term conversating. I'm going to use that in the future. Yeah. And, uh, okay. Yeah, I thought it was great conversation. <laughs> and, uh, but uh, two things, um, you know, I, I spent a lot of time at CIA and 
you know, my, essentially my job was to anticipate the future, you know, the near term future, the far term future. And I remember, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago saying to people, you know, the big issue that we're going to face, I can just feel it simmering in society is the loss of meaning. Mm. I think modern life has in many ways uh, destroyed meaning uh, for people. So, you know, people found meaning in their work uh, and, and, you know, we can argue about why, but in many ways work has been trivialized and automated uh, to the point where it's just not so meaningful anymore. People found meaning in religion and that's definitely under stress. <clears throat> People found meaning in their families or communities and that and those are also under stress. And I, I just thought a lot about what it meant for what I, I perceive to be this very rapid deconstruction of the structures of meaning in just normal everyday life and, and what it meant, what it means for that to fall apart. So that's one thought that I have. Uh, a second thought is I also, cause you know, my job is to think about horrible things that could happen in the world. Uh, I was trying to think the last time in history where a whole bunch of mostly men were, and back then it was all men, uh, demilitarized, uh, you know, forced to leave this intense forever war and go back into human society. And it was really after World War I. And, uh, and in Europe, the uh, existence of millions of men who could not find work, uh, who could not find meaning, uh, led to very bad things in terms of social upheaval and politics, particularly in Germany. So I, I would, you know, in idle moments, think about, well, what does it mean that we've got, you know, millions of soldiers returning demilitarized, who've been involved in forever wars, you know, the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, and now what happens to them when they are forced to come back to this, you know, uh, life that lacks meaning for them? And the thing that's, you know, obvious when you join the military and you experience something like that is you have a lot of meaning that's constructed by your experience, clearly, and special bonds, and then and then it, it all goes away. And, and then the third thing I'll say is, uh, I, don't, I don't know if you guys, because you're considerably younger than I am, remember the whole Unabomber thing, this guy, hermit, unhappy man, living in the woods, seemingly unhappy man, living in the woods, a hermit, and who started brilliant man, and I don't know if, because he was from Chicago, Julia, if you have any uh, perspective on this, yeah. but he, uh, you know, the way he was caught is this, he wrote this huge manifesto mm -hmm. about how technology was destroying society and so forth and so on. And how, you know, men used to find, people used to find meaning in sort of their work. And now technology means they don't have to do that work anymore. And on more than one occasion, there's something really uh, uh, difficult happens or, or turbulent happens in society. I, I find myself thinking, well, the Unabomber was right. 
Mm-hmm. As, you know, he was wrong in his <laughs> tactics, right? Mm-hmm. But I mean, he was, <laughs> I mean, I don't know, he was evil in his tactics. Let's not just say wrong, but you know, he had, he was observing many things about society that are, that, that, that are kind of correct in terms of how they affect people. And so, you know, one of the things that, you know, and I'm not really a, a radical anti-capitalist, although I have to say as a, as a side note, there was a, a guy who was a senior analyst at CIA who always amused me because he introduced himself as the CIA's house Marxist. And <laughs> it just, just cracked me up, you know, because he, he was sort of a rabid anti-capitalist. But that's kind of, you know, the kind of the, the, uh, the uh, uh, primordial capitalist instinct desires to increase profit mm. and all those other consequences of increasing profit are just not important. Right. At least, you know, that's an extreme caricature. I mean, so what, so what is your opinion on someone that has that type of stance that where they're so opposed to to growth in that way where they, you know, essentially radicalize themselves and carry out, you know, obviously that should be frowned upon by any one that cares about human life, but like, you know, was he wrong really? I mean, well, I I mean, that's that, you know, and I think you see, I mean, I think you see this despair and humiliation. And I want to go back to the word humiliation. And, and I think the Unabomber was humiliated in his life. I think humiliation is dangerous. Uh, is the worst thing you can do to another human being is to humiliate them because you've like destroyed their inner peace when you humiliate them. And I came to that conclusion after lo- reading the biographies of the 9-11 uh, perpetrators and you you know they were humiliated they felt that their societies had been and their and their own ways of being were being humiliated by the west mm. you know almost all of them had been in europe for many years before they carried out the bombings and and they had this i think we're carrying this sense of humiliation but you find that doesn't this- mean it's okay to you're not saying it's okay to have done the bombings as a response no 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 i'm not saying that at all i'm yeah, just yeah. i'm just saying that uh you know what what how i internalize that personally is that i work really hard and i fail but i work constantly really hard at not embarrassing people if you were to say what's sort of the little voice in the back of my head that's telling me don't do that because that could be embarrassing to the other person. Because obviously embarrassment is the precursor to humiliation. And I think a lot of these, all of them, I don't know, uh, men, because they're mostly men who commit these mass murders are feeling that, you know, they're despairing and they're feeling humiliated. And I think, I I feel very sorry for them. I don't mean that in like a patronizing way. I I am saddened that they felt no other recourse, that society offered them no other way out of that feeling, apparently. 
do you feel do you feel like humiliation or the way someone like processes that right do you yeah. feel like that is a trait or characteristic that can be developed or worked on because i've talked about mm -hmm. this with jose to a degree yeah. about resilience right and i yes. grew up with a brother that that was a year and a half older than me and he basically bullied me my whole life and i bullied him back and you know we experienced that throughout our our public school you know education bullying and bullying peers and you know i know i know nowadays you know things can get out of control and, and go too far but it was always amongst friends you know mm -hmm. and it was usually in a in a playful manner but sometimes you know you would upset people you would humiliate them or embarrass them and I think living, growing up like that and experiencing that, I really do feel like being in, once I joined the Marine Corps and being in that setting, I was at an advantage because I was used to, I was used to getting hazed, if you want to call it that, or, mm -hmm. or, you know, messed with and picked on. And it was just an, the way I was brought up. So when I think about someone as an adult male, you know, being embarrassed or humiliated to the point where they're like reckless abandon, you know, and the, the care for human life is gone. Like what, is that not a skill or a trait that can be, can be developed in anyone? But I mean, it takes, Karen, do you mind, uh, Carmen, do you mind if I, no, please, please. Like, yeah. It takes both sides, right? So like, so I used to teach my son. So he's 22 now, but when he was a kid, he's extremely sensitive. Okay. So I used to teach him like, no one can make you feel embarrassed without your permission. And so like, I'm six feet tall. If someone said to me, ha ha, you're so short. I'd be like, it has no impact because it doesn't match my internal knowledge about who I am. And it's the same as someone said I was stupid because I know I'm smart. Right. But if someone said something to me about something that I'm secretly ashamed of or embarrassed mm. by, then it's a hook. Mm. And it grabs the hook. Yeah. So it depends on the person where those hooks are. And those hooks have to do with your nature, like how sensitive you are, what kind of character you have, but also have to have to do with what happened to you when you were growing up. Like you and your brother were good naturedly, you know, getting on each other. But in other families, there's like really not good natured abuse, right? Yeah. So it really depends on all these capacities that we have. So the answer to the question of can you really learn to be resilient? depends a lot on that other stuff. Right. And so there's no one answer. So you have to guard both sides of the equation and try to also not embarrass people because you don't know where they're coming from. You don't know what their background is. You don't know what they're dealing with. You don't know if their mother just died, right? You just don't know. Right, that's right. You don't know. And you can just step into something. One, one thing I wanted to say uh, to your question, Tyler, is that <coughs> I, um, uh, you know, I have a small reputation as sort of an entrepreneur inside CIA. And I got interviewed for a show once by a guy who's a, you know, he's a techie guy. And he uh, asked me whether, uh, what my childhood had been like. And so his show was Entrepreneurs Everywhere. It was on Sirius XM radio. And he asked me, you know, what was your childhood was like? And I had, you know, I told you my dad was in the army, but he was, he was insecure. He was an unhappy man. He drank a lot. We, we fought all the time in the house. He and my mother fought. I was often the reason why they fought. 
you know, he gave me a black eye once, which I was thought was really the coolest thing ever that, you know, because I, I got, that's how I reacted to it because I got in the way of him going to hit my mom. And uh, so anyway, the guy running the, uh, the show, like described my childhood, not in that detail, but in considerable detail, he goes, aha, I knew it. And he asks all the entrepreneurs and innovators that come on his show the same question. And he said, the overwhelming majority report a really troubled childhood. And his theory is that that kind of experience in your childhood is like a sink or swim moment. Again, depending upon, I don't know, genetics and other stuff. So some are obviously don't prosper as a result of that kind of childhood. But those who do, he said, he thinks the benefit is that they develop emotional intelligence in a way that really benefits them for the rest of their lives. And if you're going to be an entrepreneur and try to change systems from within, you have to be very attuned to all these signals that people send out. And that's what emotional intelligence uh, allows you to have. And it, it, speaking of resilience, this is a, a, a you know a kind of a silly example, but I, I always am reminded of it. I was I was on a flight once that you know all kinds of bad things happened, so they deboarded the plane at the airport, and we had to spend the whole night at the airport, like from one o'clock to seven o'clock in the morning before they allow us to take off again. And there was a woman passenger who was you know maybe in her forties, who was walking around in a panic, and she was saying this is the worst thing that has happened to me in my life. And I'm like looking at her like going, oh, oh, honey, you know, <laughs> you know, but, but obviously to think that she actually thought it was the worst thing that ha had happened to her in, in her life was, was pretty yeah, amusing. You've, li you've lived She's a blessed. pretty blessed, yeah, you've lived a blessed life. <laughs> yes, right, yes. Or has a memory disorder, possible. Or has, yes, that's it, has a memory disorder. <laughs> So I'm curious whether, you know, the military, how it, you know, the military at this point need, must know that they have this issue at the end of, you know, the, the life, you know, when they're, when they're enlistees leave, this, this is not a minor issue that's happening. So how are they trying to adjust the, I mean, or are they trying to adjust the inboarding onboarding process because I, you know I know that the whole idea of military training is kind of this idea of breaking down the individual identity and you know attaching yourself to your team and uh, the experience can be dehumanizing so are military people are trying to understand how to make this a healthier experience for for people um, that but well, so recently I had a, a conversation with a, a general and uh, I'll maybe offline I'll, I'll mention his name, but they don't have a, an algorithm. They don't have anything. And just to touch back real quick on, on the Unabomber, um, you know, he was exploited by, you know, this idea of capitalism. You know, he was put in Harvard, given a bunch of drugs, and then there was no ritual, right? So the man was humiliated. Uh, and you look at the military today, it's kind of going through a series of, of internal wars of the subculture clashes. And one of them is, is that we no longer have uh, this kind of, it's kind of like hyper-reality. We don't know what is real. And there's just copies of copies of copies. And what I mean by that is there's no, no longer a 
true ritual and initiation for young men to either enter into this business or this foray of doing some of the most grueling things, experience some of the most, you know, radical things, um, according to our mission, which is to locate, close with, destroy the enemy. And then there's no, no, no ritual to kind of say, this was a part of your past, now enter hey, into society. Jose, sorry, yes. could you say that slower about to locate what, what destroy the enemy? Just so that I, this is the first sure. time I've heard that. So the mission of the Marine Corps Rifle Squad is to locate, close with, destroy the enemy by fire and maneuver. Um, Can you say it slower? Locate, close with, and destroy? The enemy by fire and maneuver. Wow. Or to repel the enemy's assault by fire and close combat. That's the other part of it. So they they teach us. I think they still teach it in the Marine Corps, but that's what is Every Marine is a rifleman. Yes. Right. Right? Yes. And they teach you that saying at boot camp, actually. Mm-hmm. So regardless of what your specialty becomes after that, you you learn that. Like, that's- well, so don't you think? I mean, sorry, Jose, to jump in here, but it really strikes me as that's part of the problem because it's not giving you a broader range of skill sets to repel the enemy or or to destroy the enemy. And so it's like we've already got the answer for you. It's shooting. Um, so go for it it's like incredible like that, that and then when you go out in the world now you're not supposed to shoot mm-hmm. well, right i mean so you have no per- like you're literally given a purpose and then it's literally taken away from you so this goes back into i think one of the original conversations we had on linkedin where i think you asked me is like how does unconditional love exist on the battle space and this yeah. is very paradoxical because on one level you know opposing forces internally can love one another i.e. the ultimate sacrifice right of course there's variables that come into play you know there's impulse um like corporal dunham who jumped on a grenade and absorbed the blast and you know did he have an attachment to his squad i don't know or the guy next to him i don't know i can't answer that i wasn't there and then and then on another fundamental level right you have this act of killing and this act of killing is like the far end of the spectrum where you're in a sense doing it out of love, right? Either kill or get killed. Now, the way the Marine Corps back in the day uh, dealt with this issue is we have 14 leadership, uh, 14 leadership traits and principles. We have honor, courage, commitment, right? We have a, an Aristotelian framework that allows us to traverse the spectrum without losing ourselves. And this is what I wanted to say about the subculture clash, right? So we have this degrading Aristotelian virtue ethics system, and you have this transition take place into society that's completely incommensurable. It traverses like this idea of emotivism, right? Where everything is built off of emotion, not fact. There's this super level of consumerism taking place. And then you're talking about people with codes that are very antiquated, right? Like, and, and not only that, you have this complete distortion of, of what is it what it is what it is for a man to love his his fellow countrymen or, or what it is even for a woman to love her fellow countrywoman right and when you have this mix on top of hyper compounded situations like exponential tech persuasive technologies uh the per, the perversion of narratives uh, it leads to these radical or this radicalization and this weaponization. And immediately you get this crazy 
you get January 6th is, is what happens. You get this exploitation of people that end up moving against, you know, the supposed enemy. And what does it cause? Just more trauma. It, it increases cortisol and norepinephrine. And it causes millions of micro actions. And, and before you know it, we can't do anything about it. So my point is, is the military is currently looking for something. And this is, this is why I'm fascinated with your work, Julia, because one, it, it finally merges this, you know, Aristotelian framework, but by making it compatible with technology and you're using all the right language. And I think that a part of it is we don't, we don't really see the tether or the connection. And, and that's what I think is cool about technology and the way we can use biofeedback is by biosyncing to one another to actually see the connection. And then if you give people the skill sets to learn things about nutrition, about uh, kinesics, biometrics, you can induce a kind of tether. And then you create this kind of encrypted network like Cipernet, which is just a, a very buffed up, you know, encrypted network where you can communicate with one another. And then you can do things like, you know, precognitive dream work or talk about these things or what you dreamt about or what you experienced and, you know, make it secure. And of course, you know, if I talk about that within, you know, the, the Marine Corps, it, it, it's kind of like, are you nuts, man? Like this, this is not a business that, you know, this is a, this is a gun club, you know, but yeah. So again, this goes back to kind of why I wanted to talk to both of you is because you're two authorities and you're taking this subject matter into, you know, national security, maybe not through the same language, but you're approaching it with something that's practical. And then I think at the heart of all of this is, is it is a mental health, right? We need an upgraded biological model. So we're, we're nervous systems that are completely hijacked by our technology and the pre-existing ACEs, right? These adverse childhood effects. And we have no coping skills, right? They don't teach you how to cope with this stuff. Right. So, okay, uh, uh, a couple of things. Uh, I'm just gonna spring them. So one thing that I keep thinking about is Mary Dellman, who was a endocrinology professor at University of California, San Francisco. She died in December, but for the most of the, second part of her career, she was working with the military, specifically with the VA, and, and I was one of her graduate students when I was at UCSF, to try to, um, what she noticed was what we're talking about here, I think a lot, is that, great, it, it's really exciting to train people to be on a team and to, to love each other and to go on a mission and to do it really exceedingly well. Like that is like hands down exciting for man, woman, and child. I mean, that's, that brings about something that Abraham Maslow called the self-transcendence, right? It's like at the top of the hierarchy, you actually have this desire to transcend yourself and to work with others towards a goal. And that's actually necessary for, for people to feel like their life has purpose, especially as they get older, right? So, so actually having an organization that trains people to do that is profoundly important. And it's important to the well-being of our whole country, even just training people in how to be self-transcendent. It becomes even more and more important as many people start to think the whole point of life is to make money or to have their opinion be voiced the loudest or whatever it is, right? So just having a training method for self-transcendence is a service of the military that I really respect. And mostly my interactions with the military 
have come through talking with other academics who work with the military or talking to generals. Like I, nine years ago, I was working with some generals at Samueli Institute, which uh, works on some military trying to strategize and they were working on resilience. And the concern with the generals was, if we talk to you about the idea of the importance of resilience, are you gonna take that to mean that the soldier or the airman or whomever is a bad soldier or airman or whomever, if they can't get to a place of resilience within a certain, are you gonna to start to think that resilience is their fault? In other words, and, and I got the impression that the answer was yes, that it was going to happen. And it does sort of seem like that's happened. So that's too bad. And I understand why, because I don't think there are the structures to sort of tell the truth um, about what's going on here. And it seems that the what's, what's very supportive when people are being trained in self-transcendence is after they're done with their first project, as Mary Dolman used to say, they need a new mission. They need a new mission. And after that, a new mission. And so this, this moving from a place of, of where you have this team, okay, so you lose the people on your team, but can you, how can you get the skills to make a new team, to go build schools in your home state, or to help guard a grade school so that someone doesn't come in and shoot, right? Like there's so many different projects to build a new library. There's so many peacetime projects that a team of people who already know how to be self-transcendent self could actually do. But it seems to me obvious that if you tell the truth about how human beings are, you say, once you've trained someone like that, they're gonna wanna do it because that's the drug we're all looking for. We're all yeah. looking for self-transcendence. You gave them that drug and it's a helpful drug. It's one of the few helpful drugs. So how can we support that in continuation? And I think that's what it would be fun to talk to generals about is onboarding in the same way, right? If you're onboarding and say, we're gonna train you in this martial art of the mind, and yeah, you're going to do stuff with your body and your body is going to be challenged, but it's a martial art of your mind. And that's why I would want, like in that phrase you just spoke about so quickly that rolled off your tongue. Okay, what about repelling your enemy with your mind and with fire? I mean, just adding that in, using your mind to repel your enemy, that could change a lot. No, so please excuse my ignorance for a moment on this, but is, what, isn't there something that physically happens in the body when you experience like a traumatic event with another person, you know, you, you become but like bonded to them. Yeah. There's a lot of things that happen. So one of them is a release of oxytocin, which is a bond, which is the bonding hormone. So like, I mean, and, and I know it just doesn't have to be on a battlefield or, or anywhere else, but any like extremely uh, stressful situation you go through with someone else, like you just form a connection with them. Yeah, and those connections can be used for good and they don't have to go away. It just seems to me, I mean, we also kind of don't handle graduating from college very well. And we kind of don't handle, like all, of, we're not very good at recognizing that um, we've just given people this gift and we can actually support them in using it. It's sort of like, now that you've done this thing, now you should ignore what you've learned and go do something else that we're not gonna tell you how to do. I mean, it just that's just not how people work. And so, I really respect what you're trying to do because what you're saying is, um, you know, we're sane people and we haven't killed ourselves, but we can understand why people would because what you're trying to do is ex explain humans to other humans, but that the way you're explaining humans doesn't work. It's not real. It's not true. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's a challenge. I mean... I think it's all, it's all dependent on the individual too. Like you have to want to be in this, 
in a in a certain place for yourself um you know like we talked about you can say purpose but like what is purpose like when i was a marine in the infantry i knew what my purpose was it was what jose recited like that was my mission and we did it i'm i'm i am grateful that i got that experience i know jose is a lot of our guys are but because i can look at it like that for what it was i do feel like i'll be able to be successful no matter what but some guys can't they just think i'm that that was my mission i know my mission locate close with and destroy the enemy by fire and maneuver or repel the enemy's assault by fire and close combat that's them as a civilian you can't be that we all knew it we all knew when we were in there or at least when it was close to time to leaving that this skill set does not translate it doesn't it doesn't come with me i still have it i can maintain it and 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 keep it if i want to but it's not really in the practical sense going to help me moving forward what i know how to do here is not going to help me but that's not but that's not true it's only when the skill set is framed as um, repelling the enemy with gunfire, right. right? Right. And so the people respond to that in two ways. One, um, I'm going to create an enemy that I will then repel with gunfire, sure. right? So January sure. 6th. And two, if if you have a lot of resources like you two and you're capable of, of making the switch, you go, okay, I'm going to notice that I was also trained mentally and I'm going to use that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's... So that's Carmen, what I think you're, I think you're muted, Carmen. Oh. Uh, did you both serve multiple tours? Yeah, I did two. I was on two. And, yet, uh, and Jose did three. He did three. So when you, uh, my, by the time you'd done more than one and you were with a unit, were you able to kind of reliably identify, spot people who you thought were going to have more trouble uh you know i mean so did you actually form a diagnostic framework however you know rough it was in your mind and you could say you know i i worry about joe over here or tim i think he's gonna have trouble when he gets out so we had an internal system that some people took too far and they called it hazing mm -hmm. look so all right so this is the ugly side of, well, I don't really, I wouldn't call it ugly side. I'm just going to be blunt with you. There are internal measures that we conducted in order to basically fish these guys out so that they wouldn't deploy. The Marine Corps has, the Marine Corps needs bodies, but the problem is, is not all the bodies. And I hate to say it that way are not, uh, it's, they're not going to be, they're not going to be able to operate like that. And so there's things that I'm not proud of that I had to do in order to get these individuals out of my unit because it was going to result in someone dying. Now, I probably did more damage to that individual because now I took away something that was maybe, maybe something that like Foucault would say, you know, something that was a, a matter of like internal ritual, something that was, you know, they were looking to prove themselves as this thing called a man and I, and I robbed them of that, or you would call that a moral injury, right? So now you have this individual who did some time and then they're out in the streets and they've been robbed of this experience because they couldn't cut it. Again, we weren't given the toolkit to, you know, we weren't given a trauma-informed 
toolkit to navigate that. The only, I think, elite unit that's really elite, I mean, the Marine Corps is an elite unit, but you know, you're looking at, you know, Special Forces, MARSOC, all those SOCOM guys that have, you know, on-site psychologists to vet those individuals. When you're, you know, <laughs> it's wartime and you're, you're going back-to-back tours, you, you don't have time. Uh, and so it's an, it's an ugly business. It's, it's get them out there. But that was stripped away. Uh, those internal measures were stripped away. And now uh, this is kind of me and Tyler's worry is that what's propagating now within the internal ranks, right? Like what, what measure is there, right? And a lot of these individuals, you know, and I argue all the time, you know, about fifth generation war fighting or even in fifth generation war fighting, you know, oh, it's a tech war. No, I don't think so. The proliferation of EMPs and, and designer technologies is probably going to, you know, bring us back to a, a more, uh, you know, this is a gunfight IED type stuff, but um, we're afraid of that. And so, you know, I guess to answer your question, Carmen, we did have a, a diagnostic framework. Um, it wasn't always the best one. Uh, and it probably did, it recycled the trauma, essentially. It just wasn't our, our problem. It was somebody else's at that time. Right. Sorry. And to what extent you have to ask yourself exactly in that situation, Jose, to what extent is the military essentially needing to repair the trauma that's already been done for the people who are coming in as part of the work that they do so that they can do the work in the world? And that ends up, of course, traumatizing them more by the nature of the fact that people have to be traumatized when they hurt other people, otherwise they're sociopaths. Right. And so, um, so so you're creating trauma and you're trying to heal trauma and then you know that there has to be an outboarding process for offboarding process to heal the trauma that's been compounded and um all that is true but it's just not clear yet how to do that and i think yeah you're right jose that the the stuff the technology i'm working on is a start but i have no idea if it could actually work in that way i mean it would have to take a pilot program to figure out could it even work with one unit you know um or something because um this is big stuff well to that extent right now actually early march 25th this is kind of sad but it's also kind of like a a, maybe a godsend i don't know um i was sharing with a, a doc that the VA has now initiated this $20 million challenge to anyone who can bring the best uh, solution to solving the suicide epidemic within the, the military and within the civilian sector. And I'm, I'm going to submit the O33 program the, or the Meta Intelligence program um, because, and, and this kind of goes into like kind of uh, what I've been trying to get on. I've been really upset that I've been attempting to talk with representatives they don't want to talk with me because they want to know who I'm working with, who my network is. And one, I don't need to disclose that information. You shouldn't know if someone has a solution, let's, let's sit down and talk about it. Um, that's the least you can do. I, you know, I write down my credentials and let them know who I am. And maybe this is me being self-entitled or maybe it's my ego, but you know, if someone, if someone told me is like, Hey, I have a solution probably to this mental health issue that deals with national security. I would want to listen to them, but I met with resistance all the way up. And that's why I wanted to 
you know, talk about task force, you know, influence operations and trauma-informed practice, we need to upgrade that model. We have no model for the civilian sector nor the military to diagnose or understand how hypercompounded operations are affecting the biology, the nervous system. And we don't have a language model to uh, interpret that. And so here we are on the eve of a new, you know, presidential election. You have this brewing vengeance, I would imagine, from specific demographics that feel that they've been mistreated or they weren't, you know, justified. And it's going to come back with a vengeance. And who, okay, so you, you can, you know, if you were to look at what the Russians did, right? You know, mimetic warfare, narrative warfare, they essentially disrupted that process and they primed us for this very moment. Why? And I know why. Right now, I, I think the problem is, is that we just keep putting band-aids over these issues. And there's a lot of issues, right? You have someone yelling over here that climate change is the issue. We have well, violence that just took place. How do we handle gun control? Um, we, there's so many. And so how do you pick and choose those battles? Um, and so I have, I have some solutions uh, and there it's, and I always tell Tyler, this is a lifelong mission till the day I die. This is, this is going to be the fight is, is mental health, upgrading mental health as, as much as I can. And uh, so, yeah, I, I guess I'm going to throw those nuggets out there and maybe I'll, I don't know, maybe I can. Well, I have a, I have a, to give you some context for why people might need to know, you know, who you're working with, just so that you don't feel like they're disrespecting you or something. Um, that happens to everyone who's trying to um, sell anyone technology or discuss any technology with anyone. And the reason is like, you could be a Russian guy who like, who are you working with? Like, I don't know, you know, you could be like a Russian tech, you know, subverter person, right? I mean, they have to be very careful, right? And so um, there's that. And then there's also like a sense of, well, should I talk with you because I only have a certain amount of time? And um, if you're not working with, you know, Google or one of these other large companies that's very likely to help support this project, then it's maybe not likely to happen because it's such a big, big project. And so maybe you don't have the support and structure needed. And so that's a concern too. So I think, I think that's why people would ask those questions. It's not out of disrespect. It's just they have a limited amount of time. I'm sure they have a limited amount of money. To, to pay for people to talk to people about this stuff. So I don't know, does that, is that correct, Carmen? I mean, would you think that that would be the case? Well, I think that's part, part of the explanation, but there is, you know, historically, it's very hard for independent people with different ideas to break through, you know, and in the tech world, you know, if you're one of the big tech companies they presume, the government in general presumes you have solutions and very difficult for a, a startup to actually even enter into the competition. So I think it, it's a combination. And the reason why that happens is for the reasons that you stated, but still it makes it difficult for people with new ideas to, to make an impact. And it's, you know, I would hope that the VA, I mean, if the VA were really serious about that idea, they would have rules about who can apply. And they would say, you know, we don't want these kinds of companies applying. And, you know, we, we you know, they, they would just come up with rules. 
And so I don't know if they have, but if they haven't, they should. Because I think, I mean, I think that they would want these ideas to come from people with firsthand experience, not just some kind of an academic experience. So it's like, you know, when they came out with all that COVID relief money, which was really intended for smaller companies, so much of it was grabbed right away by big companies, big companies. who, you know, th the program was never intended for them. And what, what big companies have is they have all this experience in writing government proposals. They know how to speak the government thing that uh, people are looking for. And I'm sure there are Beltway Bandits right now who are planning to bid on that uh, $20 million prize. Um, you know, and it's just because they've got that expertise in, 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 in knowing how to write and apply for government money. So it's, it's unfortunate. Yeah, I mean, if the VA had an innovation office that was tasked with only receiving grants from smaller or, or in fact, only receiving grant proposals from ex-military people, right. I mean, right, people who yeah. are actually, like, that would be great. And that, would, that would be smarter. Powerful and also right. be a good story. I mean, it would do all sorts of things and it'd go a long way towards solving the problem in a better way. There was um, uh, something on LinkedIn where a general... Does he pronounce his name Miley, General Miley, the, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, gave a talk at, I think, West Point recently about how the Army needs more innovation. And, you know, somebody pointed out innovation is a word anybody can throw around, but you don't really need more innovation. You need, you need a better uh, environment to support innovation. And, you know, you know, everybody pays lip service to the word. And it, it's, there's so, you know, there's so much you have to do. It really is like the myth of Sisyphus, you know, pushing the ball up the hill. If you're gonna try to make a large organization do something differently, it's, it's gotta be just one of the hardest things to do. And, you know, organizations are essentially, essentially created uh, to deliver what they perceive to be a value at scale. The Marines have this, you know, killing value that they can deliver at scale. And other organizations have other values. And so if you're gonna deliver something consistently at scale, then you need consistency. You don't want people changing how they, how, how things work because that just mess, that leads to a, a lack of smoothness. And, and that's the fundamental, I mean, in my view, the fundamental dynamic that makes it almost impossible for large organizations to do what's really in their best interest. And oh, it's, it's a tragedy. I agree. And I also think that what is lost in the sort of argument that smoothness is what helps you deliver at scale yeah. in a large organization is that smoothness over the short time frame is exactly what helps you deliver it. Scale. Right, right. And that's necessary. But over the long time frame, it what it's what tanks your organization. Exactly. If exactly. it's too smooth, if you don't change, like that, right. is, you're you're gone. Like you're yeah. done. You've failed. Yeah. This is uh, I think this is this is something that me and Polly talk about. Is uh, all right. How would you do? All right. So mental health already has the stigma, right? Um, even today, you can't really talk about it from just the, the general conversations that I've had with guys that are selective duty. And so I think one of the other aspects is, is 
no one really has talked about how mental health actually enhances your warfighting capability. And that is the angle that I'm approaching it. And that's, I, it's, you know, this is something that I wish the Marine Corps would adopt rather than playing these identity politics, distorting its view is, look, just be honest about what, what it is that you do. And then let's find the best practical approaches to mitigate these, these really hardcore issues for, for longevity. It's plain and simple. And so that's, that's the approach. That's the approach. That's why I say upgrading mental health to meet the needs of a national defense strategy and national security. And then boom, we're in business. Um, See, I think the words that work better because of the conversation about mental health being like a weakness like even thinking about mental health the sort of the sort of subconscious conversation is like even thinking about your mental health is like giving in to me <laughs> that shouldn't yeah. matter and so to avoid getting people into that subconscious conversation before they've heard you out i feel like talking about it as the mental martial art of war fighting like talking about it as as the 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 mental, the mental martial art, it's that it just keeps coming back to me. Like, that's really what you're talking about here. You too have had to do a mental martial art to get where you are now and do what you're doing now. And you're continuing to do it. But you had to invent that yourself. It's not like you were trained in that, but you were trained in the self-transcendence piece, which helped that emerge. And so there's, there's a bit that's already there. And then there's the bit that can be put on top of it and can feed into it and that can actually be named as like so so but except here's the wrong way to do it i just saw an ad for a psyops group a special forces psyops group and it was a recruiting ad and it was do you know this group you know this oh oh, yeah oh yeah ghost in the machine yeah so yeah and so the ad is like we control the narrative we control mm. your minds you know we're come be one of the ones who's in control of everyone's mind like i've seen that i've yes. seen that as that's, well yes that's the sociopathic narrative that we would right. like to avoid because it right. causes problems that's not about right. being honest about what's going on that's pretending to me that's that that's the, that's like the way that the military some of the military has adopted to the idea of what's going on well we're just going to be in control of everything that's actually not true yeah and that gets people in trouble because then they think they failed if they're not in control and they're not going to be in control it makes me think about issues the cia has which is where i spent my career and the cia uh you know how it's portrayed in the movies is just stupid and 95 percent wrong but they enjoy being portrayed that way. They enjoy that kind of badass portrayal. And so they don't discourage it. And so uh, they bring in people, you know, to start their lives as CIA officers. And uh, they, some of them uh, end up washing out, maybe many of them end up washing out because they didn't realize the CIA career was, you know, kind of boring a lot of the time and uh, and then they realize, you mean I have to learn to read and I have to know how to read and write to have a CIA career? I thought I just got to travel around in fast cars and shoot at people, right? So they, they you know, this, this disconnect occurs, right? And, uh, you know, both the CIA to a much lesser extent and the military, you know, which they really, don't come to grips with from what I hear from you is that they're messing with people's minds. 
and they have, you know, that initial basic training, they're missing. They're just, they're really trying to rewire your minds. And then they kind of wash their hands of the consequences of that. Uh, and I'm sure that these mental health issues manifest themselves while, while people are still in active service. And uh, so, you know, and, you know, we think of physical health as, you know, we're all, you know, working on improving our physical health. All of us are. You know, I monitor my sleep. I try to eat well, yada, yada, yada. And, and yet we don't really have the same conversations about constantly improving our mental health. And, uh, and, and we can improve our mental health, I think. Although, I don't know, Julia, you, you probably know better, you, you do know better than I do. I don't think we have the same clarity about how to improve our mental health that we now have about how to improve our physical health. We have a lot more clarity about that, I think, than we do about mental health. Do you agree? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Because it's not taboo. It hasn't been taboo for more than 200 years to talk about the idea that you could not be mentally healthy and that might be something that you could fix. It was either like lock them up or they're okay. <laughs> you know. And um, so that has been shifting. There was just an article that came out in what is it? The American Psychologist, this American Psychological Association rag about how actually attitudes towards depression, depression is the one mental health um, problem, the one mental health disease that is now no longer has as much taboo. Every other thing, anxiety, PTSD, um, schizophrenia, schizotypal stuff, bipolar disorder, all the other common things that happen to people, those are still have the same amount of taboo. So there's been some progress with depression, but if you don't have depression, <laughs> good luck, you know, or if you have depression plus anxiety or depression plus PTSD or whatever it is. So, so yeah, it's, um, it's back to this kind of, I think there's this sort of pervasive idea that you're supposed to be, especially for men in our culture, I think, I think, and I think it's more damaging for men because it's especially for men, that to be fully a man, you're supposed to be in control of all facets of your life. And that's a setup for failure because it's not true for any single person on the planet. I don't care how much money you have. I don't care how much authority or how much power you have. There's no one for whom it's true that they're in control of every aspect of their life, right? You can't buy health, right? Sometimes things just happen right you could get hit by a bus right so it's this it's this idea that if you're a good person and if you're doing things right and if you make the right choices all those things are important to be a good person to do the right things and to make the right choices those are important but that doesn't mean that what you get is perfect control of your life it just that that is not an outcome that happens and so we're starting as a culture to, to recognize this situation <laughs> And it's a difficult one because part of what we define as the American way is kind of like being in control, you know, like we're gonna do it, we're individuals, we can do anything. And um, it just doesn't match with the reality and we're kind of coming up against it with coronavirus because we see like some people get it and die and they were perfectly healthy and other people don't and they were sick already. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. And we start to kind of grow up as a culture and see that 
the fantasy of control over every aspect of your life, if you live in a culture where you're supposed to be free, doesn't work. Well, you know, there's something really blessed about American culture, but also uh, tragic. So, and I was curious, I'm curious whether or not the, you have the same incidents of mental health issues in other militaries that have served in Iraq and, and Afghanistan. And really, I think the Brits and the Canadians, maybe the Germans are the ones that have done the most, uh, I know the Brits were involved in a lot of the, of the fighting in Afghanistan. Uh, so I'm just curious whether or not it, it is the same, because then, it, I mean, that might help us understand better if it isn't the same, why it's, why, you know, it's such an American phenomenon. But the, the issue of American be, being blessed is, you know, except for the Civil War, we've had all these wars being fought in the world that were not fought on American soil. And we don't, uh, we didn't suffer the destruction and the, the level of destruction in Europe after World War II was incredible. Uh, I think the, Spain and Portugal <laughs> were the only countries that were spared and countries like Germany and England and Poland and so much of Eastern Europe were just completely devastated. And I think that that experience must have had a, quite a sobering effect on that society. And I think that's why, you know, they trend to be, you know, uh, they tend to trend more socialist and more egalitarian and whatever, because they, they've kind of had this experience of being brought down to the very bottom and this realization that they had to, I guess, build everything back up together in some way that was more more resilient, more robust. So anyway, do you know anything about? I would say, I, would say, I mean, we worked, I personally worked with, and I don't know who, who Jose was with on his third tour, but I was directly with Brits and Estonians. Um, and the way they fight is completely different than the way United States Marines fight. And I mean, I'm sure that has to do with training and legacy and everything else. But I, from what I've read, you know, it's, I've, I've read some articles about like, you know, the Chechnyan wars and, and things like that, and how it was very easy to pick out individuals that participated in combat um, on the, you know, just on the streets after it was over, you could, you could you could notice in their appearance that they were different than people that hadn't. So I would imagine that since the beginning of time, when, when man or woman decided to kill other men and women, you know, you are going to have effects. I think the culture has a lot to do with how those are apparent in society. Right. So Vietnam era guys, which, you know, my, my family's business, I interact with several, you know, quite a, quite a few Vietnam guys and the help that they're receiving now is they're all so grateful for the VA and, and what, what it, where it's at now and how it can help them. You know, a lot of these guys are in their seventies or, you know, give or take, and they need help, you know, and, and they're getting it. To whereas you have a lot of GWAT guys like our era and they're like, okay, 
America's at a point where I'm a man and I truly believe that. So I'm at my breaking point to where I'm extremely vulnerable and I'm coming in for help. And what you're doing is you're giving me prescription medications that do nothing but compound my issues and push me closer to that edge. And it's like, how do I trust you? Do you really care about me now? And I'm not bashing the VA. I know, I know they're there for a good reason. Um, but that's how they're losing trust from our guys. You know, it's like, this is not, this is not the help that I need, you know, and to be honest with you, um, I internalized everything I experienced because after I separated, I, I just put it in the pack on my back. And I was like, I need to learn the way to get through this myself because I didn't have my team. I did. I could have called any of those guys and, and most of them probably would have been able to help me to a degree, but I felt like, and I've, and I've talked to Jose about this before. I truly believe that the two most powerful experiences that you can have in life are witnessing someone born and witnessing mm -hmm. someone die. Yeah. And, and that's a gift both ways as traumatic or not as it is. And I didn't want, you know, and to being, you know, being a Marine and being brought up in that, through that system, a lot of us feel like the biggest failure would be letting our brothers down, whether it be in combat or afterwards. And, you know, we've experienced our brothers give their lives for us and our country. And for me to not succeed in life, you know, would be the greatest failure to them. Um, so that's what I did, but it wasn't until, you know, me and Jose started talking to where we really started trying to unravel this. And we're like, how did, you know, how did you, what have you been doing? We haven't talked and, you know, we chit chatted over the past 10 years, but like, we haven't really done a deep dive and like try to figure out like, Hey man, like similar circumstance, like what, what have you been doing? And there's been ups and downs, but it's like, you know, I, I never got to that point to where I was like, you know, crawling into the VA, like help me. And, and I'm grateful that I didn't, and I was able to go, a you know, go a different route because I might've been one of these guys that came in for help and the help that I got wasn't the help that I needed. You know, this is, this is the help that everyone needs is to be able to talk to somebody and be like, look, I'm still a strong man. I know this, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but it doesn't mean I can't have issues with things. Right. And I think that's where America's at now. I don't know in Europe if, if their militaries are, are at this point, you know, or if it's still frowned upon, like it probably would have been with the Vietnam era guys. You didn't talk about it. They still, it's so hard for me to crack those guys, but I do because I can just tell them I was an infantry Marine. I went downrange. They've watched it all unfold on TV. And I've had guys crying to me in my, my family store, like, and it's powerful. Like, I, and I'm grateful for that, that I have that ability. It doesn't mean that it's easy, you know? Um, well, you know, what's really, I think sad is you go into a doctor and, you know, you tell them whatever the issue is, they offer you pills. You don't need pills. You need a strategy, right? 
Doesn't matter who you are, you need a strategy for health, not pills. And don't get me started on the whole pharmaceutical thing. Yeah. It's, it's, but it, it's, it's, you know, it's, and, and most doctors, 99% of them can't give you a strategy. They don't, you know, if you, if you said to a doctor the next time they put up their prescription pad, you know, can we just put that away? I want a strategy. They wouldn't know what to say. Well, that makes me want to strategize right now. I mean, like there's things, right? I mean, we can brainstorm right now. We're people, we have good minds. I mean, seems to me, so the first sort of question I have is, this may be totally naive, but it seems to me a, a group of men, group of men and women working together on a unit. Um, so they go through the separation process. So separation means leaving the military, right? So that's a good name for it um, because it's a reminder that it's a real, big deal it's like going through a divorce almost right but so it's almost like can can there be a new kind of ritual that's a grassroots ritual that emerges among marines who are separating and so they all have each other's phone numbers they all talk on zoom every monday at 4 p.m they all um watch for these things and they have to say when they check in not just like, hey, everything's fine, whatever. They have to say one thing that's hard for them right then. It's just like part of the ritual. I just go around a circle. I guess what's hard for me right now is blah, blah, blah. So each person has to admit that there's something hard for them. And the other guys are just there supporting them. Like, that's cool. But they're not giving advice or anything. And it's kind of like a 12-step meeting, really. So you just go around the circle and, and do that. And you do it every week. I mean, why couldn't that be something that's free? That's, it just requires people to do it. Yeah, I would think the biggest challenge with that would be like location, because most guys, once they get that paper, you know, the DD-214, they're separated. They they hit the road and they're hundreds of miles into the next states. You know, it's. Can they do it on Zoom? I mean, do you know. Yeah, no. And I, I mean, I guess that's that is kind of what we're we're doing. We're, <laughs> we're doing here. Yeah. But um, yeah. Yeah, they could. I mean, I, mean, I just still... if it's if it's like a rule, like this is what we do when we graduate from the Marines. This is what we do. This right. is our ritual. Yeah, and that that definitely is a start. And that's, you know, but you still I think the challenge still is getting guys to crack, you know, getting them to actually be vulnerable. And and you should be able to be vulnerable around guys. I mean, I know. I know you're, you're all about the mind and everything, but you know, in the experience that me and Jose have had, when we've had events reuniting with, with guys, it's, it's like, it's palpable. You can feel that atmosphere. You can feel the connection with guys, you know, and Jose's talked a lot, like we've experienced on missions and we've talked about this off recording, just about how like you can almost sense where everyone is and what they're going to do like they're mm -hmm. at like you've just been around them long enough to where you you know right yeah. if this yeah. if this happens what they're going to do and you can just like read each other and even though years pass and you get back with those same groups of guys like clusters of guys you can feel that again it's like the tethers reconnecting and it's like I don't know. You yeah. know, a lot of people that might not understand that or have never experienced something like that would be like, yeah, that's crazy. They're, these guys are just wackos, but it's not, it's, it's real. And it no, takes, you learned each other. 
And it takes time to, I think, realize that that was a, like, that was a reality. You know, when you think about a, a period of time for long enough that affected you and you're trying to dissect it and like figure it out, like you realize those things are real and that's very powerful. Um, so if could you it can... be a resource? I mean, so like, I agree with you. Sorry to interrupt. Please continue. I, no, I go, no, go ahead. I, I was at, at a point there, but I just, but I, I think it, it's, yeah. it's just hard to get guys there, like to that point. It has been, it's been a challenge. Like, you know, we're me and Jose, this dude is so humble and in, in all the work he's done and what he's put in, like to try and help our guys out and, and try and stop this, especially for our, 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 our unit, right. you know, because right. he loves us all, but like, this is, it's is bigger than just us and it, and it's bleeding out. It needs, it needs to, um, yeah. but yeah. Well, can it be I, like a twist? So what I, what I love about what you said is like that the problem is cracking guys, Well, you don't have to crack guys. You just wait till they're cracked and come to you. In other words, that's right. who comes to you, right? That's who listens to your show. That's who. And so, so maybe it's instead of a card that people pass around when someone, when there's a separation event, maybe it's more like, you know, a month later, you get a note that says, hey, we're doing this thing, you know, come join us on Mondays at four or whatever, and you facilitate it. I mean, that's how the 12-step groups, I, I think they're such a great model because they basically wait till you're ready and then you show up, you know, and there's yeah. not a lot of advice giving and you don't need a therapist there or anything. It's just about being with each other and witnessing what's true, you know? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, but I think you're making great steps towards that with what you're doing already. I mean, I just, I just, I, it almost, it makes me anxious. I'm doing this with my hands because I'm like, what can we do right now? What can we do right now? No, this is the work. This is the work that, this is what it is, is, uh, is having these conversations. And uh, they've done a lot. Um, last October, we had a kind of a setback or one of our guys checked out, mm. but, but the response for, you know, for the guys that were there, that were, that knew this was happening in real time, they were on it. It's just that that guy made, he made the decision, but they were on it. Yeah. And um, so it's changing, it's changing. And, and again, you know, I think the power of narrative is, is the, is the thing that's kind of, you know, I, I'm not afraid to talk about my experiences anymore. Um, I was at some point, I do believe moving forward, because just the way influence operations are, the way technology is moving, it has to be secure and safeguarded, or it will be used against us in such ways that would cause more harm. This is why I believe, you know, I don't like posting emotional things on Facebook as much, because it's being used against us. And again, we have to, this is, this is what the program, the O33 program is supposed to do, it's supposed to give us an encrypted network to have this continuous information loop of health and wellness where right. we can constantly have communications without it. And of course, you know, you can never, you can never really secure a network. There's always going to be risk and, and vulnerabilities, but we have to have mitigation plans, not right. where it's just free flowing information that can be used against a particular group. And so I believe that the future of mental health tomorrow is going to be self-sustaining teams that we actually use PAC teams, patient aligned care teams as technicians to assist the self-sustaining teams out in 
the, you know, wherever they are throughout the United States. But there is a, and again, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not a scientist. I'm just, I'm, I receive the information and then I attempt to make it digestible for humans or for the guys. And then we do the work and, and thank God, you know, I have a, a network of people that can say, yeah, you're on the right track or yeah, this is it. And so again, you know, I, I do believe that we're spearheaded there toward the right direction. It's just, you know, I know when we get in these conversations, it's like the, I want to fix it right here, right now. And totally I'm, I'm, I'm there, but we have to understand too, that we're asking people to change their entire paradigm. We're asking for a paradigm shift of their entire thought process. We're going against decades of conditioning and habituation or individuals have just been told that this is the way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but that's okay. So that's where the unconditional love comes in. So Carmen sometimes asks me, like you talk about unconditional love a lot, but is it fast, right? Is it fast? And, and I think it's the fastest thing there is. Like it cuts through all of that stuff. So, so if people can have, to the extent that someone can have an experience of being unconditionally loved, and, and I just want to clarify this, I'm not talking about having to generate unconditional love for themselves or someone else. That is often how people take this. They think it's like yet another thing they have to do, like on the wellness check, unconditional love, not saying that. It's almost like having the experience of grace or like walking underneath the sun and the sun's shining on you. You're not shining on yourself. The sun is over there and it's shining on you. Having that experience of, of being unconditionally loved to the extent that you can get that experience from a dog, from a kid, from God, however you're going to get that experience, it is, it's ironically the most transformative and quickest um, motivator of new changes that there, I, I know of. I, it's ironic because unconditional love is about loving you exactly as you are right now without any changes, without anything changing, with all of warts and all, just you're just loved exactly as you are. What's ironic is that being loved as you are somehow makes you feel like much more capable of change, much more motivated to change. And, and so it feels to me like that has to be a priority uh, because it's so powerful, because it can, it's the universal change maker and it's accessible to everyone, you know? And so finding ways that we can access unconditional love, it's scary. And I was thinking earlier when you were talking about that separation, the name of the separation, like, well, wouldn't it be interesting if it ever gets changed to continuation? So this is the continuation of your mission. Mm -hmm. You're separating from the military, but this is continuation. Because now you've developed this group of people who are basically telepathic, you know. And what a great, what a great skill set this group of people could could use. What if that was used out in the world to do wonderful things for the world in some kind of a continuative area? But it makes me think maybe the military gets nervous about this love feeling that these mostly men have for each other. Maybe they get nervous of the power of that and what that could do out in the world when it's not under their control and in their authority structure. So instead of getting nervous about it, maybe the thing to do is to give it a channel. Like here's an official channel for, I mean, I'm not, you know, Carmen, I like to say these things that are like a thousand years off, but well, I was just, say them. you know, it's, it's just so sad that the department of veteran affairs is only about for the most part, treating illness or sickness. In the Department of Veteran Affairs, now I may be motivated after this call to look at its charter, but 
it, it should have a different charter. It should yeah. have a broader charter. It should be about the continuation, right? And, uh, and it isn't. And uh, I don't know how it got that way because, because it's, that's, that's part of the problem. I, I really think it got that way because they didn't have any good feedback. I mean, it takes, yeah. it takes your patients giving accurate feedback to really develop. And, and mm -hmm. we, we didn't, we, you know, we stayed out of that place for the most part and they just kept doing what they were doing. And it got to this point, you know, it, right. it's, it's not, I don't want to say it's the, you know, it's not their fault. A hundred percent. It's our fault too. If we're, if and we're I supposed think the associations, you know, like veterans of foreign wars and, uh there's a couple of others um you know are they relevant to today's problems they're they're getting there so i sit on a veterans committee this assessment committee um I actually sit on on a board with my my good friend johnny puckett he's a vietnam vet guy mm -hmm. and um something needed to be done and so we brought together a group of retirees a group of different era uh, war fighters. Um, we have, you know, all from all sorts of backgrounds. Um, and we even have a, a general that sits on that. And it all seems that we're all moving toward the same objective. How do we deal with this mental health issue? Well, we have a, a context issue where, or maybe it's not the context, maybe it's just, we have di differing views about how we should go about it. Um, some of them are very micro scale, and then some of them are very macro scale. Um, and I try not to impose my will because the change is happening. It's just maybe they have to deliver it in a way that's suitable for their demographic or their, their group of individuals. Mm -hmm. um, so that's one aspect of it. Um, and I think I lost my chain of thought, but I wanted to go back and say a thing about a, a brother of mine. His name is Robert Elliott. He has the Veterans Farms of North Carolina. And this man has... Back, he's fought the good fight and he's gotten a program at Fort Bragg called the soldier, the soldier to ag program where he basically anyone wanting to continue a mission differently. They go into the program, they learn how to do agriculture. And then Robert's able to take that individual and then put him into an actual farm to give him like six months of training and then set them up for success. So they're a part of this larger network. That's one way we're, or that's one way the veteran community is actually right. coming, you know, coming back from this fallout. <clears throat> Going back to the VA, there's there was a publication that recently came out, I think the summer of 2021, and it had like 21, 21 successes that it highlighted. And there were some pretty innovative stuff in there, stuff that I didn't know that the VA was actually doing. And, you know, part of it is, is the outreach, I guess. I don't typically go on the veterans side, the, veteran, the VA site or anything like that. Um, I just looked at the publication to see what's really for statistical analysis. Uh, but a part of it was there's all these innovative ideas of how they were actually approaching uh, mental health. And some of the successes were in telehealth, expanding that, getting more funding for those particular things. Um, and the other aspect was putting them into the, uh, the million dollar, uh, the million dollar, or not the million dollar, I'm sorry, the, the million veteran program where I guess they're trying to do genetic studies. And this is kind of, 
for her demographic, it might be a red flag, but they're doing genetic studies of how to actually see what PTSD does so that they can kind of like counter in the future or something like that. And I know they were doing some, some blood studies, and I want to say about six years ago regarding that. But it is in a way making a comeback uh, bureaucratically. Uh, I think right now too with the, uh, the, I think they call it the daybreak challenge, that $20 million challenge. That's, that's the hell Mary. They're, they're throwing it out there. Like, all right, guys, you're saying it's not working. Here it is. Here's the opportunity. Bring me what you got. And yeah. So I think, you know, those are some of the ways that, that that's happening where, where the, or it is shifting in a, in a good positive way. I just fear that just, I have a fear that we're not pushing fast enough. Yeah. yeah it's an impending doom that i that i have this impending doom that started in 2018 and this is why i've kind of like all right man let's let's do the work yeah well uh, and yeah carmen now i was just gonna say something banal like it's great that you're doing it or whatever. It's just, <laughs> totally inappropriate and not very uh, helpful, but it is great that that you're doing it. It's it's very impressive. Yeah, yeah, it's and again, you know, this is why I want to have this conversation, right? I mean, we're everyone is doing their part in different areas. And this is kind of like the challenge to the DOD, to the VA to our listeners who are stuck in this, this paradigm and they're not seeking, seeking innovative ideas. It's like here again is to the top brightest minds in the United States, probably in the world. And <laughs> I, I don't mean, think so. <laughs> I think so. And this is, this is where it begins. This is where it starts. This is where we get the momentum. This is where the hope begins. So let's move toward that solution. And you know, again, I couldn't ask for more, a greater gift than of all days today, especially uh, to have this conversation, because for a lot of guys right now, uh, and I posted like a little blurb, you know, about this, this conversation that we're going to have. And, you know, it was, it generated a lot of a, a good, good talking points and a lot of conversation and feedback from a lot of guys, because they're searching, they're searching for a connection and they don't see it at, at the, oh, well, I'm very privileged to know certain people to, to be able to set things up like this and have these conversations. And I, I want them to experience that same thing because I'm in it till the end. Well, yeah, they all deserve better. They all deserve to be taken with the seriousness that, that they've earned. Agree. And I, I, I feel a little bit um, regretful that when I was in my in my excitement about oh we gotta do something right now, or my impatience that I didn't remember some of the things that you mentioned, Jose, which is that there are really good hardworking people who are really trying to turn this around. Uh, in fact, that um, for the Navy and that that boat USS George Washington, um, I think the, the the head psychiatrist for the Navy is really working hard to try to ship that. And there's such an awareness of the problem. And I, I feel like I was remiss not to acknowledge that. Uh, so anyway, I'm really glad you pointed out, like, look, people are really trying. I do think that um, 
I think that perhaps it's time for the military to enlist the rest of the country um, in this essentially war on um, war on war. I mean, sort of like almost like a, a war on um, that is a war on our soldiers almost. I think it's time for the rest. Of, it's something that we did in, in a class that I'm teaching on remote viewing, we, we, we were acknowledging that when you, when you look at, when anyone observes something, you change something. When you observe a situation, you change it. And so just being seen, um, just being seen as a group of people who are going through struggle, that makes sense. The struggle, it's not like it's nonsensical. It totally makes sense for the situation you're in. It's absolutely human, absolutely perfect for even a very strong man to go through. To just being seen for that, has the value of changing the situation. And it doesn't change it nearly fast enough and for everyone. So the, so the, having the rest of the country start to see what we're doing and, and to start to basically send love. I mean, I know it sounds hokey, but like in our class, we sat there and we actually spent about half an hour just sending love to the soldiers or the, to the Navy, the folks in the Navy who are on the USS George Washington, for instance. So it's like there are people who could maybe we all need to sacrifice a little bit so we can support people who are trying to get their lives back together after being trained in some of the most difficult things that you could be trained in um, and gaining skills that, that aren't really around uh, amongst other people, which could be really valuable. So I, I have a feeling like we need to get bigger with this. I'm all about grand strategy. And that's one of the things that uh, I always talk about. We need a grand strategy and, and we need it now. Um, I believe, I do believe, Carmen, you're an optimist. <laughs> I am, I, I am too. Um, sometimes the, the things that I say seem bleak, but there's a lot of fight in me. Um, that's something that I'm not in a short supply of. I'm always, I'm always a fighter. So I believe in a whole of government and a whole of society effort. And, and that is one of the, one, that's one of the priorities that I, I've been attempting to do is how do we bring both of those things together? And I think uh, one, I think in the, in the next, you know, during this, so I have, a, I have a, a little regimen this summer. So I'm about to do another deep dive on uh, your work, Julia and uh, Eric Wargo's work and um, I'm about to tap into a few other uh, academics. Uh, so by 2023, I'm able to launch uh, my platform because I'm heavily vested in this idea that we can mitigate uh, adversarial uh, impacts uh, within the future. And I think that understanding that process is, is that I think the thing that we talked about in the past, and, and I'll just say now, um, counterfeiting, right? How do we, how do we develop opposition for, uh, force strategies to mitigate for things that are happening in the future. And that's something that we lack of. And I think we're afraid of because there's been so many future assessments, at least within like the DOD that have all failed, but yet, you know, we're not doing anything about it. And then you take, uh, I think it was a general Billy Mitchell who, you know, foresaw Pearl Harbor, talked about how airplanes were going to be the innovative force and dot, dot, dot. And it led to you know, the attack well, yeah. here, right. here before something is presented and I'm not alone in the process. I'm not alone in, in, in thinking, you know, ways like this. It's, it's a real thing. Uh, so I think in the next 
in, in, in a few years, and I think, you know, I think uh, I'm rambling here, but uh, you take the archives of the impossible uh, mm-hmm. thing that took place. That was a huge, that was a huge shift. Uh, and uh, I think being able to talk about some of that more fringe uh, topics in order to mitigate for adversarial impacts is going to be beneficial uh, to this, you know, this great experiment of democracy and how we move forward, uh, especially now that we have evidence-based strategies on how to improve physical health and then mental right. health. Right. You know, me- mental health. Um, Carmen, did you want, were you taking an intake of air to speak to that? No, I, you're, you're a very good observer. I just realized something in the category of doing things right away. Uh, you know, so I'm on the board of the National Intelligence University, and I was over there last week talking to a few of the students, and one of them <clears throat> is an Air Force officer, uh, very impressive woman, who just told me, and I liked her a lot, she's a fellow Hispanic, so, you know, La raza. La raza. La raza. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, anyway, she just got her next assignment. She's going to be Deputy Secretary of Defense, Kath Hicks, uh, one of her personal assistants. Now, you know, the Deputy Secretary of Defense has any number of personal assistants, but, um, you know, Maybe it's, you know, we, we promised that we were going to get together someday and I was going to make her chili rellenos. So, uh, you know, there might be some, you know, way of talking to her about some of these issues and she might have a way of advancing, you know, the ball forward in a, in a way that would be helpful to you. I know that if she could, she, she believed in what she were doing and she could, she would try because she's very, uh, you know, intentional about what she does. <clears throat> well, Roger so, that because I can make a good pico de gallo and. Aha! Uh-huh. Ah, there you go. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> uh, but I'm serious. I just realized. Oh, I, I just met her and and. Uh, yeah, I'm all for it. A cool thing. So I'll have to think about it. How to uh, how to make that connection work? But uh, I'm, that'll be something I'll think about in the next few weeks. I will make a white person's jicama salad. I, will not. <laughs> I, will make, I said I'll make a white person's jicama salad. That's oh, jicama, jicama. Okay, that's what I'll contribute to the meal. So Tyler, where are you? Where do you live? I live. I'm just north of Charlotte, North oh, Carolina. Are you both in North Carolina then? Yes. Yeah, he's over on the coast though. But yeah, very cool. Near very the beach. Cool. <laughs> it's a nice. It's a good state. It's a good I, state. I, I was so, actually just there uh, this past week. I was in. Uh, uh, in the mountains, in the place yeah. called Little Switzerland. Okay. And then I was in uh, Boone. Yep. See, people, we have a, you know, we were stationed in Camp Lejeune, which is Jacksonville, yeah. and it's not the greatest place to be. <laughs> but you know, I don't think any military installation is, or or you know, right. town that surrounds a base. But a lot of the guys that were from like West Coast or whatever, like, man, North Carolina sucks blah 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 and it's like dude you this is not north carolina do not right, judge right. north carolina based on yeah. this place but yeah so Very that's cool. where we're at so but thank you all thank you both for for spending some time with us i really in, enjoyed it yeah and well it. i i learned a lot so that's always a, a good thing yeah i did and, too. And, and, and sorry 
No, the other, only other thing that was entering my mind that I failed to mention, uh, so I'll mention it now, is what do you guys think of the kind, the iconography, the images, the way the servicemen are presented, the, uh, uh, you know, who served in GWAT on TV, like the Wounded Warrior ads and all that stuff. What's, how do you think of that? Mm. You think of it at all? Media, media, it depends. Uh, victim narrative is, is fairly recent. And yeah, that's and how I see it is such a heavy victim narrative that it makes me a little uncomfortable. But yeah, I, uh, <laughs> I recently went to uh, Buffalo to uh, go do this show that's coming out in 2023. And that talk about some of the paranormal experiences that I had in Afghanistan. And uh, it traversed a, a, a part where uh, one of our guys was killed. And uh, I felt it like they wanted to hit on that. And it, it's an emotional capture, right? You know, yeah. you, you, play, you, you play that so that you get people hooked in order to either one, donate the funds or to push the narrative in order to keep it going. But what it does is, I, you know, again, it taps into... <sighs> A revisionistic internal inner narrative right we begin to revise our own accounts of our lives and then because it becomes kind of like a contagion and it's popular then it then it manifests in us and then it, it persists i don't like it and i think that's part of the problem is that okay how do we so it's cathartic right i remember i mean just a year ago i talked about uh you know joe who, who died and it's still an emotional thing for me. So there's going to be, you know, if you take snippets of that and dissect it and you put it out in media, it's going to seem like it's a victim narrative, right? Um, and I don't think there's enough time to really tap into articulating that kind of an experience without, you know, it, it takes time to, to really tap into the whole flux of emotions. And I don't think media you know, the way media is done today, I don't think there's, they have a framework in order to deliver that properly. But I think it does a lot of damage and, you know, image versus substance. This is something that we talk about. This is something that mm -hmm. my, my, uh, my elders, my mentors speak to me about all the time is image versus substance. Um, and again, you know, I'm a, I hate to say this, but I, I am an, a virtue ethicist. I, I have, I, I buy by that code. It's just easier to operate off of and it keeps me in check. And it doesn't mean it doesn't allow me to traverse or stay off the path where I'm going off into or veering off into some crazy, you know, thing that is not me. So I mean, yeah. So I don't yeah. know if that answers your question. Yeah. Well, no. and and one of the big things for me is you know what I what I don't what I dislike about that is, you know, when you're talking about PTSD or individuals struggling with like traumas like that, typically the way that they react is is like self-harm or or self-inflicted right they they typically don't act out um and when you see things like that or or you know i don't know how the majority of the country or world feels about like war veterans but i feel like the picture being painted is like anybody that's been to war is just like unstable right like they're they there's no way that they can conduct a you know successful happy life and that i do feel like that's kind of like projected onto us 
with a lot of these like initiatives. It's like, no, like how we were brought up in our unit, no better friend, no worse enemy, right? That's who I am. I, I want to be approachable. I want people, I don't want people to be standoffish towards me because they, you know, that I'm a combat veteran, you know, that's, it's not who I am. Why do you think the majority of us signed up to do this? Cause we care about this place, you know, and we don't want to see it fall apart. Um, so that's my problem that I have with that. I mean, I know the, it's hard for me to cast hate on anything really. Cause that just takes too much of my energy that I don't want to give to that, but it's, it's, I know that I know it probably started off as a, as a good cause, but now it's just about money most likely, you know, um, like everything, but so, yeah, that's what I think, but no, um, you said something really interesting. Go ahead. Sorry. I was just going to say good on them, you know, for, for helping who they can, but they're also helping themselves. So it's not selfless, but well, not bitches. I mean, organizations, do, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> organizations do have to survive. Right. I, I understand. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, it, uh, this is, so I know that we're winding down and stuff, but also I think it's important to bring something up here because connection was just made in my mind and whatever connection is made, I, some, for some reason, think other people should hear about it. So anyway, the connection is between this idea was, Jose, you were talking about revisionist history, like that, that there's this, it's, this victim narrative is sort of creates a revisionist history about what actually did happen to me. But there's a way in which you can healthily use um, connection with your past self and connection with your future self to actually repair and heal from trauma. And it's not revisionist history. It's, it's a way of accepting what was actually happening, like what actually happened and loving what actually happened in both directions in time. And you knew I would bring this up eventually because this is my passion. But anyway, you're it, talking about temperaticals, correct? Yeah, well, the temperaticals I call it, or which comes from like the root for time, temporal, um, and pseudicals for for healing. But but also like time machine, like that technology right. that we created. Um, we're talking with some folks who work in NGOs with Ukrainian refugees about whether we could use it for Ukrainian refugees. They're interested in this idea. Well, why couldn't we also use it from, with people who are either in or left the military in the sense that what it does is it helps you connect with the wisdom that was true for you at that time. You know what, that, what you carry with yourself contiguously through time yourself. Like one of you said it, that the goal was to not lose yourself. Well, part of not losing yourself is not losing any of the truths about what happened along the way. It doesn't mean you have to remember every single moment, but not losing the essential you-ness your essential uniqueness and valuing that so that that there's no reason that you would act out because you are strong in this sort of thread over time. And if in this particular moment, the thread is down because you're going through a hard time, well, at the other moments, they also are part of you. And those threads were up here. And so those threads can kind of pull to pull up that down thread, you know, sort of pull it and so that we're now all kind of here because we consist of ourselves throughout time. Anyway, I this comes back to the point that I think with the precognition piece and the, and the forecasting piece, 
we need to start thinking of ourselves differently in time in general. And that is a healing act. It is to, to have this opinion that you need to have everything all at once or else you're not successful. That is a devastating act because who has everything all at once, right? But what's a healing act is to say, well, I had this at that time and I may have this in the future and I have this thing now and all of that counts. It doesn't count. It doesn't not count because it's over. It counts when it, because it happened. And now this other thing is happening. So anyway, just extending the sense of who we are over time so that we can count all that as valuable um, will really shift, I think, a cultural, I mean, I've always, you know, 100 years away from things happening that I'm talking about. But anyway, at some point, we've got to get towards this and we might as well start now, I guess is what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> totally. No, yeah. No, 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 no. I, I understand it. Um, it takes it takes a meta influencer to to conduct this type of level of engineering or social engineering to deliver this, um, especially to our demographic. Man, it's we try to we try to, you know, get guys on from the unit just to chop it up. And it's hard. Some some guys cancel out and why i don't i don't understand that i don't know if it's like an image an image thing that it's an it's an image of weakness or it's just i don't know um well i mean there's a lot there i mean you're dealing with a lot i mean the, what are the three top things that cause stress moving divorce and death you have all three of those essentially hmm. i mean that's a bundle We'll get it done. We'll get it done. We'll we'll make some moves. Yeah, but it's okay to ask for help. Okay. One of the things I've learned in this whole Rebels at Work, making organizational change, is you have to accept the small steps forward. The small mm -hmm. steps forward have to be encouragements, not frustrations. The small steps forward are 95% of the time the 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 most progress you will make is lining up one step small step forward after another small step forward. I once spoke at a conference in California to teachers and this about rebels at work and this young teacher came up to me and she goes, I've got two words for you, tiny pivots, tiny pivots. And that's what she did. And I know it's not you know it's not as satisfying for the ego to to make the small steps but it's better than no steps at all and uh and it's amazing you know i know i look back at my own career just doing something a little different uh 10 15 years later led to a significant change and you know, another thing I like to say is that you always have to speak your truth. You know, don't, you can compromise on a lot of things, but don't compromise on whatever your truth is. Because, you know, you never know who's going to hear you. And there are people who will hear you. And I've been surprised by people who come back to me and said, hey, you know, I heard you say this and it really made a difference. And, you know, I went and did that. So who knew, right? So I think that that's, 
those two things are, are really important. So as they say, soldier on. We'll do till the end. Thank you both. Yes. Appreciate your time. See you guys. It was great. Pico de gallo, chili rellenos. Come on. Asado, <laughs> I'm there. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to stop recording.